is a presentation of Financial Crisis Recovery. Foreclosure, short sales, bankruptcy, credit card debt, job loss, depreciating home values, money management. Peace of mind when it comes to your finances seems completely out of reach under current conditions, but there is a way to achieve it. For the next 60 minutes, you're going to find out how to cover your assets. Cover your assets. Now, here's nationally renowned speaker and expert on getting you on the path to financial strength, Todd Rooker. Good everybody. Hey, I'm here. Had to, had to beat Mike Orson and Jason out of my office here. Get myself hunkered down in the studio. ESPN, KSTP, Score North Studios, whatever it is we're going to call them. Uh, we're going to talk today about credit and finance, and I'm going to try and enlighten uh, you about how this stuff actually works. Everybody tends to think they understand it and because it's simple and it's straightforward, and it's not. Uh, <clears throat> the reality is that people are expected to understand money and finance, or at least the financial industry operates as though that's true. And as somebody who works with uh, a lot of folks who, in, in fairness, are probably more sophisticated than the average, uh, I can tell you firsthand that most people don't really have an understanding of how this stuff works. And so I'm going to try to enlighten you. So today's show is about credit and finance. So let's first start off with this. You know, everybody talks about credit and, you know, um, there's credit repair companies that are out there and I'm not diminishing the value of any of that. But I, the first question I would pose to you is this. Why do we even care about credit? What's the, what's the, I mean, why do you care? Is it just this number that you brag about? And if, and if so, to what end do you brag about it? Why does it matter? Uh, well, I would tell you that it is, uh, and, and by the way, you want to, if you're at home, you want to get yourself a notepad and a pen or pencil or have your laptop out because you're going to want to take some notes because I'm going to give you some really good information and really good nuggets. So the reason you care about credit is because of what it gets you in financing terms. Now, the sad portrayal is th for most people, it is their their lack of of. Uh, capacity to think, and capacity is a word I'm going to use today, but it is their capacity to to think big because everyone they know uh, may not think that way, and they tend to have a diminished capacity to see themselves succeeding in a measured way or a significant way financially. <clears throat> and I'm going to submit to you that I think everybody who's listening to this should have a goal of owning 10 investment properties. And I know that probably seems a bit absurd. And look, I'm not a real estate agent, so I'm not a mortgage broker. I am a true believer in real estate investing, and I'm going to explain that to you. But for most people, the reason they care about credit is because they get lower interest rates, and all they care about is their car payments being lower for the same, for more car, they pay less. I mean, because if it wasn't about that, hey, you just buy a lesser car. But see, the thing is, people want more. They feel as though they deserve more. And they they have an insatiable need to have more stuff. And I'm not saying that that's uh, a, a good thing or a bad thing. I'm telling you, this is just the way it is. And of course, there's people out there who are thrifty and cheap, and, and they'll tell you they're, they're not like that. But... 
for the most part, people are trying to demonstrate how they're doing financially by the car that they drive, the house that they live in, the clothes that they wear, the restaurants that they go to, maybe the golf clubs that they carry. Who knows? Whatever it is that they use to put out there in the world to prove how they're doing financially. Well, the goal is that they have limited capacity to qualify for financing, which is the key. And that that capacity, they want to buy more with the income that they have so they can push more out there and show you how they're doing and have more stuff or buy better stuff. And again, not good or bad, not making any judgments. I'm just telling you the reason people care about credit is because it gets them lower interest rates on financing and it allows the their their income, whatever it happens to be, to be able to purchase more uh, with the same amount of income. And so that's really what we're talking about. Now, that can obviously get you in trouble, but nevertheless, that's what they care about. Now, I would submit to you that your credit actually represents leverage because low interest financing in the way that we have it today represents tremendous leverage. In other words, the money that I have, less of it can be put into into simply pure cost of living and can be put to work to make infinitely more money than what I pay in interest. This is why this notion of I want to own everything with cash and I want to pay everything off, everything free and clear. Now, I'm aware of all the people who have told you that that's the way to go. And it's wrong and they're wrong. And I don't care what they say or what they think. Uh, the reason they do that is more sensibility. They just want to own things because they're fearful if something goes wrong, they lose their job. Uh, they won't, no one's coming to take away their home or their car. And look, I can certainly appreciate that because that is a uh, a human uh, sensibility issue where I just want security. And I, I recognize that. But remember that if I can take the same amount of money that would be paid towards uh, an expense, which I may have to have, a roof over my head, a car that I drive, anything else that I might finance, and I can put that money to work and get an 8% or more return on investment versus paying a 4% interest rate on a loan, which I may or may not be able to write off the interest in my taxes, which equates to more more money and, and an actual overall higher return and lesser cost, then all of those things say that's where my leverage is. Leverage is doing more with the same resources that you have. Now, we could argue that people have infinitely more capability in creating the resources, but let's leave that alone for now. And let's just talk about what it is that, that financing and credit gets us. It gets us leverage. So if I own an investment property and because I have good credit and I have a good enough income that I'm able to qualify for an investment property, if I vet that property correctly, we talk about this all the time, and for some of you who hear real estate, you think you already know everything about it, because, and, the, and you'll make this point that you don't want to fix toilets and, and such nonsense. Well, let me just tell you, that's an absolute incorrect assumption. If you buy investment real estate and you don't put enough money down so that your payment is low enough so that the market rent, what you will collect in rent, will not be enough to cover all of the long-term costs not just the general maintenance, but the long-term capital costs of replacement of major items during the time of ownership, and to be able to hire a management and maintenance company, then you're not doing it right. All right? And so 
that's a whole other conversation. And know that this is, I teach people this. I, it's, it's, I'm a financial coach. It's what I do. I teach people how to do this in addition to many, many other things related to money and finance. But this is the main point. If you own 20 properties, you're not fixing toilets in the middle of the night. All right. You may have a day job that makes you dramatically more money for time spent than the money that you would pay someone else, i.e. $25 an hour to fix and maintain the property. It's not a high paying job. Property management is not a high paying job. Neither is, is, uh, you know, being a, a fixer or repairman or woman. Uh, so if you're a, an RN who makes 60, 70, 80, a hundred dollars an hour, or you're a consultant or a financial advisor or a real estate agent making possibly several hundred dollars per hour for time spent, then you would never be involved in painting, uh, rooms when your tenant moves out. You have to turn the property over to a new tenant and, and, and cleaning and, and shampooing carpets. I mean, if you're doing that kind of stuff, then you need to have your head examined and you need to understand and take and analyze how things work. Nevertheless, if you do it right, then remember that you could put as little as 20% down on a property. That tenant over time will pay off that asset. So let's say it's a $200,000 property. You're going to put $40,000 down in the course of 20 years, 20 years based on an uh, increasing value of three and a half percent. Traditionally, real estate has gone up at three to four percent. Uh, listen to Jason earlier saying he thought real estate overall would be slowing down, uh, which may be true in terms of its uh, the effect of inflation, supply and demand on its increase. And we'll talk about whether or not we're talking about appreciation or simply inflation affecting the cost of real estate. But. I would say that that's true, except when it gets to the lower end of real estate. And the reason for that is because they're not building homes in this, in this segment, 250,000 and below as it sits right now. And so guess what? If incomes do not go up dramatically and they're not going to, then there's going to be a whole lot of people who need a place to live and their incomes will not enable them to qualify for a property that's 400,000 and higher, which is what they're building today. In fact, I don't even know that it's 400,000. I would say you're more talking about 600,000 and up. They're building those like they're going out of style. You look for new home construction where they're building a single family home for 250,000 below, you're gonna be looking a long time because there isn't anything. And so consequently, those properties, because they will be in, in demand and short supply, I believe you're going to see an increased valuation or inflationary rate because of lack of supply and, and greater demand. So where real estate traditionally has gone up three to 4% per year, we'll, we'll call that three and a half percent. I think you're going to see that be much higher in that lower segment of starter homes, we'll call them. So. If that's true and we just use a split the difference between three and four and use 3.5, do you realize that a $200,000 home in 20 years will be worth $400,000? So you have put $40,000 down on a $200,000 investment property, 20%. $40,000 down, made payments, and in 20 years, depending on whether or not you take out 15-year or 20-year or 30-year mortgages on that investment property, that property will be two-thirds of the way, if not more, paid off, and it will be, at this point, now worth double what you paid for it, what you finance, what you 
paid for. You put $40,000 down, and even if it's a 30-year mortgage, in that 30-year period of time, your $40,000 as a cash-on-cash return, assuming that you did the math properly and you never had to pull money out of your pocket along the way to fix things, and that's the finesse of knowing how to properly analyze properties and knowing cap rates and knowing cash-on-cash return and all the formulas that go along with it, which, let's be clear, 9 out of 10 people who buy investment real estate don't know how to do that and don't know what they're doing, especially when it comes to long-term total expense. And those are your long-term capital costs of things that will go wrong, major fixtures, which all have a life cycle and will have to be replaced. And that's really the most challenging component to be able to analyze. And that's what we do, but nevertheless. So if you do it right, you put $40,000 down and in 30 years, it turned into $400,000. Wow. Wow. And all you needed to do that was credit and the ability to have enough money to put down. So your ability to finance and your ability to qualify for a loan for an investment property will net you that return. When I say leverage, that's what credit and financing is. It's leverage. It's giving you the capacity to do what I've just described. That's what is valuable about credit and finance. And that's why if you want to succeed financially and you want to do something more than simply stick your money in a in a mutual fund, 401k uh, portfolio of, of stocks and bonds and a diversified overall portfolio, if you're looking to do more than that and do it in something that is tangible and that you can clearly understand and probably has the best tax benefits in existence, which blow the doors off of your traditional qualified plans like a 401k, 403b, SEP, Keo, Roth, 401k, uh, or uh, whatever, um, then real estate's the ticket for you. But you have to understand it, and if you do, then your ability to, to secure financing and have good credit and utilize that credit for a purpose gives you leverage, and this is what can be accomplished. So we're going to take a break, and we will be back talking about credit and finance, what it means to you in terms of leverage, and how does all of this stuff work. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody. So, as I talk about, you know, I guess grandiose ideas about what you're going to, your goal should be to own 10 properties. I know for most of you, that is so far out of your wheelhouse, it's it's not even worth considering, and you shut down the minute I say something like that. I, I understand. And frankly, much of it has to do with not your income, but with the people that you hang around with and the way they think, which invariably winds up being the way you think. And that in and of itself, is a challenge to be overcome. That is a huge challenge because it is it is ingrained in your thoughts. It's, uh, I, I don't know what, it's like politics. People have a, a particular idea and all they do is listen to the things that, that, that further demonstrate the narrative that they've already got in their minds and that's all they hear and, and you can't change their minds if your life depended on it. It's very much like that with money and finance. People have a notion of the way they are, the way their lives are, their opportunities or lack thereof. And that's 
That's the limiting factor. It's not the reality that's the limiting factor. It's their notion of the reality that's the limiting factor. And, you know, there lies the problem. There's our whole, there's, there's, uh, there's society's problem. We live in America, folks. And although everybody thinks that doesn't mean the same thing anymore, it's not true. What it is is that it's what people believe. Uh, you get around people like myself who think and speak differently. You invariably become a different, uh, a different person as well. You, you have a different outlook. You have a different perspective. The opportunities that are available to you are, are different. Uh, and not because anything changed, just because your perception of the situation changes. So, yeah, I have a, I have a son who I am so very, very proud of who works two full-time jobs, ongoing, um, ongoing 78 to 84 hours per week he works, has for years, and he saves money, and he owns and wants to own more investment property. Now, you may say that's ridiculous, and I would never do that, and I'm not willing to do that. Well, first of all, if you're going to do it, you got to do it when you're young. That's that's number one. You don't want to do it when you're 50 or 60 years old because, frankly, your energy level goes down, and it becomes a lot harder. But if you're ever going to bite the bullet and and do what's necessary, it's going to have to be when you're young. Now, if you come from a family and a background and a and a, and a history of people who, who don't do those things, forgive me, they're lazy. They're not willing to work that hard. Well, then it is what it is, uh, and and that's life. Uh, and I, by the way, I didn't teach my kid, or at least I don't think I ever specifically said to do that. It's just something that he did. So another way to go about that might be if you're married to live on one income and bank the next one. So if you were able to do that and save thirty or forty thousand dollars every year, that means in ten years you'd have enough money to be able to buy every single year a new property in ten years. So I made the point that you put forty thousand dollars down on a two hundred thousand dollar property. Over the course of thirty years, that property will be paid off. Moreover, that property will be worth more than twice what you paid for it, $400,000 plus. And now imagine that that sacrifice nets you in the space of 20 to 30 years, nets you $4 million. Wow. Is that doable for most of you in your 401k? Well, I can do the math and tell you no <laughs> um, for most of you. Uh, now, that is available to everybody. And so if you live on one income and bank the other one, but what does that mean? Well, it means today you have a smaller house, a smaller car. It means you don't get to put things out there into the, into the, the, the space and prove how you do it financially with a bigger, better, more expensive car, bigger, better home, send your kids to private school, take more elaborate vacations and all the other things that people put out there as how you doing financially. And they'll tell you those are all the things that they have going on as though that's how you measure money and finance. And it's not. You measure money and finance based on assets. Everything you own minus everybody you owe and whatever's left, that's how you're doing financially. But that is not how people think about money. And so just in have, in saying that, you recognize that you're going to have to become a, a bit of, a, of an odd duck as compared with everybody else in just simply the way you look at things from a financial perspective. So here we go with the finance part. So there's what we like to call the three or four-legged stool, and I'm going to introduce some other things. So when you go to get a loan, 
Credit is only one, one, one element of qualifying for financing. So what that means is that you could have an 800 credit score and not qualify for a loan. Now, that comes as a surprise to a lot of people. They, they What? I mean, if you have a low credit score, you have this notion that if your credit score was better, the world would simply open up to you and you could buy and finance anything as though you could finance anything and you don't have to pay for it. (laughs) But you have such a desire to prove to people how you're doing financially because you can't finance things. That's your limiting factor for not being able to get a better, more expensive car. So when someone else shows up with a better, more expensive car than you drive, it makes you feel uncomfortable and you grind your teeth and wish you had better credit so you can qualify for a better, bigger car. (laughs) How pathetic. Uh, So here are the tenants. That means the pillars of finance. I'm going to talk about real estate finance specifically because that's a path to wealth if you haven't figured out what I've been trying to say all along. So the first C is capacity or income. Income is your capacity to make payments. That means that we're going to take whatever your gross income is. And remember, you don't receive your gross income. Your gross income is a number that you start with. And then before you actually get your take-home pay, your employer is going to be subtracting out the standard withholdings for state and federal taxes. They're going to be withholding the FICA tax, the Social Security income tax. They're going to be withholding possibly your contribution to your retirement account, maybe the portion that you pay for your health insurance, maybe if you've opted in to the company-sponsored life insurance for one, two, three times gross income in life insurance, maybe you've got the disability plan, you check the box for that one, whatever it is, all of that's coming out of your check. And so that gross number, in fairness, has no relationship or very little relationship to the actual money that you get in your take-home pay. So that ought to tell you something right there that should scare you. They're using a gross number and they're not taking into account how much or how little is being taken out of your check based on your decisions when you got your job and decided to have more or less going to your retirement account. None of that's taken into account at all, which tells you why so easily people can get themselves into trouble financially when buying or purchasing or qualifying for a home, even with today's more stringent lending guidelines. But income is your capacity to make payments, your capability based on your income or cash flow to be able to make a payment. So that's number one. Number two is cash. And sometimes you'll hear cash or collateral put together. So cash is the money that you have to put down. Now, it's not physical cash. And if you listen to the last show, you heard Jason and and Mike Overson uh, lamenting when they thought it became no longer possible to bring cash to a closing and use physical cash at closing. In other words, it won't work. You can't show up with $50,000 in a paper sack and close. They won't allow you to do that in today's world. It can't be done. In fact, if, there's probably nothing that'll shut a closing down on a home more quickly than that. But cash simply means the money that you have to put down. So there's, there's cash. Collateral 
is the loan-to-value equation. So you are in some some way affecting that loan-to-value equation or collateral simply by putting more money down, which gives you less money that you're going to be financing. So if I put 20% down on a property, then my loan-to-value will be 80%, right? Uh, however, if you buy a property right and it appraises for $100,000 more than you're paying, well, then I guess you've automatically built in collateral and you may still be putting 20% down, which would give your loan-to-value equation a really attractive formula for anyone who wanted to give you financing. And the reason for that is if you stop making payments, they can sell that home and easily get their money back. Remember, in a lot of instances, that's not the case. You can put as little as 3.5% down on a home today. Well, let me just guarantee you, if you, if that home, you stop making payments, goes into foreclosure, that home may not be sold for market value. It'll be known as a toxic asset when the bank takes it over in foreclosure, and they may sell that home for as much as 20, 30% less than its current market value because no one wants to pay full price on that property. So, Remember, the bank is looking who is going to give you the loan to redeem their loan or the amount, the funds that they've given you if you stop making payments. So your loan to value and your capacity to make payments is very much at issue. It also relates to the monies that you have in reserve, your 401k, your, your, the, the money that you are saving in a checking or savings account that you're not putting down on the house. All of that says, hey, you've got reserves. So if things go wrong, you can make payments for X number of months and not go into foreclosure or begin to default on that loan. So those are all things taken into account when you go to get financing. And so before I go too much further, let me say this. Your goal is to make yourself look attractive for financing. It is not simply to show up at a mortgage broker's office or a banker's office, dump your crap on the desk and say, can I close in 30 days without any concept of how you're being looked at, much less how to make yourself attractive for financing, which, of course, I just described 99 out of 100 people. They have no clue. You know, when a business wants a $5 million loan, if I'm the CFO of that business, I've been told that a year in advance that we're going to be seeking financing. And my job is to understand underwriting standards related to that type of commercial or business loan. And I am positioning the financial transparency, which is to say the books of the company. So I won't extend us in certain areas and I won't do certain things and I'll make things look a certain way. So when we go to get that $5 million in financing, we're a slam dunk and we can show capacity, collateral, credit and character within the business and the management of it so we get the loans. Ironically, when people go to buy a house, qualify for two, three, five hundred thousand dollars of loan, they have no idea how they need to look, much less how to make themselves look look attractive. So if you want to be different, this is why I'm telling you these things. Then you position yourself and you know when you walk in the door you're already a slam dunk. So that's that this is a different way to look at things and puts you in a different status than other people. So cash and or collateral as well as reserves. Then we've got credit. Now, credit is an issue depending on the type of financing that you're looking to to uh, get. And know that FHA financing is very different than conventional financing, wherein FHA financing is a government-insured program. That's what it is. FHA is basically saying to the lender, if this consumer defaults on the loan, we will pay X percentage of the loss. That's what it is. 
That that's what an FHA loan is. Just like just like a a, a VA loan. Just like an SBA loan. All of these loans are essentially government incentivizing banks and lenders to do business with people who who they might otherwise not do business with. Here's the other thing about FHA or 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 these types of loans. The credit score threshold is minimal. In other words, when you think about a tri-merge related to credit, TransUnion, Experian, and Equifax, those are the three major credit bureaus. There's many, many more, but those are the major ones. So when they pull a tri-merge, they throw out the high score, whichever one of those companies, TransUnion, Experian, or Equifax, who happens to have the high score. And the irony is they'll all be different, and they'll all have different information, and they are all unique and individual separate business entities. Well, do they talk to each other? Yeah, they probably do. But nevertheless, they're going to throw out the high score. They're going to throw out the low score, and they're going to take the mid score. I didn't say an average of the three. I said they're going to take the middle one, whichever one happens to be the middle one, and that will be your score used for mortgage finance. So when you go to get an FHA loan, if your middle score is 620 to 640 or higher, you get the best interest rates that exist. And because FHA loans are incentivized by the government, the interest rates will almost always be slightly better than conventional financing. So what they're really doing is they're taking people with really good credit and people with not so good credit, and they're giving everybody the same interest rates. So imagine this. If I go to my employer and I get health insurance and I'm young and healthy, People have this silly notion that getting group health insurance is a good thing. Well, let me tell you what. Remember, they're taking the costs of that group. Some people are very expensive because they're older. They've got high blood pressure, high cholesterol, diabetes. Some people have no issues whatsoever. And they're lumping everybody together. And essentially, everybody's paying the same rate. Well, guess what? If you're really healthy... That means you're overpaying for your health insurance. And if you're unhealthy, you're paying less for your health insurance because the people who are healthy are paying more to subsidize the cost of yours being less. Is that the way FHA loans work with credit, good credit and bad credit? It is precisely the way it works. So an FHA loan is going to give you a better interest rate and the credit score threshold that everybody's so concerned with is very minimal. I don't think anybody with a 641 credit score is going to write home and brag about it. Yet, that gets you the best interest rate in existence. I don't mean crappy interest rates. I mean the best interest rates. And remember also that FHA will allow you, with that same credit score, will allow you to buy investment properties. And an FHA will allow you to buy up to 10 investment properties. (laughs) So credit is important uh, to the extent that it matters on a loan. Now, conventional financing, well, to get the best interest rates, you're going to have to have a 750-plus credit score to have the same interest rates that are competitive with an FHA loan that only requires a 620 or a 640. However, mortgage insurance with an FHA loan will also be watered down and there's limitations on on FHA financing. So if you're buying a, a big expensive home, FHA may not fit the bill and the conventional loan market may be a much better place for you. If you have bad credit with a conventional loan, they will beat you up and you'll pay a higher premium all the way up to an 800 credit score. 
But with FHA, everybody pays the same for mortgage insurance. The difference is that FHA, you may have to carry the mortgage insurance for the life of the loan or at least 10 years as compared with once you achieve a 20% equity position with a conventional loan, you may be able to dump, get your property reappraised and dump the mortgage insurance premium, which you'll no longer need because now they feel comfortable that you have 20% equity or more. It may wind up being a very conservative estimate, just so you know, uh, appraisal that is. So uh, that is income capacity, cash or collateral, as well as reserves, and credit. When we come back, I'm going to talk about another C that rarely does anybody talk about, but exists in abundance, nevertheless. Hey, welcome back, everybody. So, what's the the C that nobody talks about, but every bit as meaningful as the others that I've just mentioned? So the others I've just mentioned, capacity to make payments, cash or collateral, as well as reserves, credit. And here's the, here's the, the, the one that, that doesn't get talked about. Incidentally, all of these underwriting standards and guidelines are available online, which of course presupposes you're going to read these things and have a clue what they mean. Uh, hopefully you listen to the show and you will and you're taking notes. <laughs> I'm not a note taker. Well, today you become a note taker. How about that? Anyway, uh, so you, you can go to any any of their websites, the company-sponsored uh, lenders' websites, you know, Bank of America, Chase, you know, whomever, and they provide these online. So you can find these guidelines. But here's one that you'll not find. Character. 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 They want you to pay the loan back, right? In fact, it's not so much about paying the money back. They want you to pay them return on investment, which is the interest they make on the money. So how does somebody... How does somebody determine character? Why don't they print this online? Well, you know, this political correct environment, uh, that could be a challenge. But nevertheless, every underwriter is looking for it and they are trained to see it. So where do they see character in financial documents? I mean, they're not talking to you. Remember, the underwriter is probably never talking to the borrower so how do they t- determine capacity? What are the what are the tools? What is the information they're utilizing to do that? Well, the first thing would be uh, would be your net worth. Okay, so net worth. Now again, I've just finished saying that most people don't even consider what their net worth is. In fact, if you ask people, has your net worth increased from last year to this year, and if so, by what percentage? They'll look at you with an eyebrow in the air and and a perplexed face because I have no idea what you're talking about. And that's just shocking uh, because to them, as I've already made the point, the way you demonstrate how you're doing financially is with the car you drive, the expensive watch that you wear, the furniture that you buy, the restaurant you go to. And none of that has anything to do with net worth, your assets minus liability. So when you are somebody who has a substantial net worth, you're already a different person. And by the way, I know lots of people who make three, four, five hundred thousand dollars a year. And those numbers, forgive me, are not meant to alienate you. It's meant to illustrate and dramatize a point, which is that I know lots of people like that who have very little net worth and not because they just started making that money and they're young. They're 40, 50 years old and they have low net worths relative to that income because that's not how they measure themselves. They measure themselves by the private college they send their kids to or the private high school they send their kids to and the country club they belong to. 
Uh, and if not for the 401k at work or the pension plan or the retirement account, they would have very little net worth other than the equity in their home. And that's the reality. So when you do things different, you're already demonstrating character. What's another way to look for character? A savings account. How many people do you think have in today's world a savings account that month over month is increasing? I'm on, I'm not talking about your retirement account. I'm not talking about the money that comes out of your check every month. I'm saying in addition to that, you have a savings account that grows consistently. $500 per month more, more this month than you had last month and 500 more next month than you have this month. It goes on and on. Let me tell you, you show me somebody who has two, three, five years of a consistently increasing savings account and I'll show you a person with character. They are a different human being. They're almost like a unicorn in today's society. Does an underwriter when looking, when qualifying you for a loan look for that? Yes, they do. And why is that important? Because all the things that I talked about, income capacity, cash and collateral and reserves and credit, many people may have one or two of those things in abundance, but be deficient in one area. And they will need what are known as compensating factors to make up for the weak area to get the loan and finance. Here again, people are oblivious to this. They have no idea that this is what's going on behind the scenes. So what are, what is something that that helps you shore up that weakness that is the character and these are the things we're talking about so a savings account that is ever growing consistently i don't mean you're saving money so you can buy a new snowmobile (laughs) i mean you save money just to save money and you do it ongoing and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger well i can tell you the vast majority of the population they only save money so they can buy something the idea of saving money just to save and have stability and security (laughs) doesn't even occur to them and moreover it doesn't occur to all the other people they know who are also broke and don't think that way. You understand what I said about where you come from and the way you think. So, savings account. A second job. That's another character builder. A second job that you've done consistently. Not for six months to try to pay down credit cards. I mean, you work a second job consistently, which may be the thing that enables you to put money away in that savings account month over month over month. That's a character builder. Your education, the fact that you completed your education, that you didn't go to college for five years and never got a degree, but you actually finished. And then obviously advanced degrees and advancing in your career and advancing in your income over time. Uh, long-time employment, being with the same company for a long period of time. I don't know if you realize this, but that is generally on your credit report. So all of these things are character builders and significant character builders. All right. So those are the major factors. Now, The next component that we'll talk about when we come back from this next break is how you're looked at. We're going to talk about income to payment ratio and debt to income ratio, and we're going to roll through that very quickly. So if you haven't grabbed a pen and paper, I really recommend you do this because I'm going to give you numbers, and I just want you to write down what I say. Then you can analyze how to apply it to your numbers and get a sense of where you are and how money and finance works as it relates to qualifying for a loan for a home and or investment property. We will be right back. Welcome back, everybody. So, 
Let's roll into some formulas here. So the first formula is income to payment ratio. Now I'm going to use nice round numbers so that you can track and stay with me. And this is going to give you a sense of how you're going to be looked at and how you're qualified for a loan. So let's start off with $100,000 in income as as though it's it's uh, it's a nice round number with, with some zeros. You may make half this and then literally you can appropriate the difference. So $100,000, typically you're looking at an income to payment ratio, meaning here's your gross income and here's how much house payment you can qualify for. And that payment will will include principal, interest, taxes, and insurance and association dues if you have them. So if I make $100,000 per year, 31% of that is $31,000. Write that down. 100,000 times 0.31 is 31,000. Now I take the $31,000, I divide that by 12, and the maximum payment you can qualify for is 2583.33, 31%. Now I want you to know that lending programs will enable a person to go far beyond this 31%, but this is a basic tenant. 31 to 33 is is typically where what you're looking at. So that's your income to payment ratio, 258333. Now, the next thing they're going to take into account is what's known as DTI, debt to income ratio. And it's considered with long-term debt. What's the definition of long-term debt as it relates to mortgage finance? Any payment when making the minimum payment, not what you're paying, but what the minimum payment is, if it will take 11 months or more to pay it off, that is considered long-term financing. And any long-term financing or payments you have to make will go into your debt-to-income ratio. Now, your debt-to-income ratio cannot exceed 10% of your total gross income. If it does, it will take away from your capacity to qualify for the payment I just told you of 2583. So 10% of $100,000 for a grand total of 41%, 31% on the house payment, 10% on other long-term debt, total 41%, $10,000 divided by 12 is $833 per month. So let's just imagine that you've got a car payment of $600 per month. You've got minimum payments on credit cards of $150, and you got student loans of $300 per month. Nothing out, outlandish about that. But that's $1,050, and I told you 10% was only $833 per month, so you've got a difference above and beyond what your 10% is of $216.67. So that $258333, which was 31% of your income, is now decreased by the amount that you have monthly above that 10%. So we take the 258333, subtract out the 21667, and now the maximum monthly payment you can qualify for is 2366.66. That's what works. Income to payment ratio overlaid with DTI debt to income ratio tells you what you can qualify for as a maximum. Now, if you have an investment property, you should be aware that if you have a tenant and you're going out to qualify for an investment property, well, you've already got your mortgage payment you have to qualify for, right? So now you're going to buy another property. Well, you mean to tell me my income has to be high enough to qualify for that investment property on top of this? I'll never be able to buy an investment property. Not true. Because if you can get a one-year signed lease before you close, you've got, they're going to offset 70% of what that payment is against your income. And you're only going 
going to have to show capacity for 30% of what that payment actually is, which gives you vastly more latitude to buy more. And as time goes along and your rental income is above and beyond what your payment is, now you have income that will offset that and you'll actually have income to qualify for another property. So that's how that works. That's income to payment ratio and that's debt to income ratio overlaid with that. So when you think about inflation and appreciation on your home, I'll submit this to you. Your home that you live in, that you buy, that you think is the best investment that anybody can make is absolutely not the case. Your house isn't depreciating. It's simply going up relative to inflation. And the reason that you're not enjoying appreciation is because you're paying for it. So before you tell me that your home went up by 3 or 5 or 10%, subtract out the property taxes, the insurance, the debt or interest you're paying on the debt on the, on the loan, and then subtract all of the costs to maintain the property on top of that, and you'll realize that you're not even coming close to keeping pace with inflation. However, when someone else is paying that in investment property, now you are seeing real appreciation because you're not paying for it. If you want help with this, give us a call. Talk